Luke 9:51 through 10:2. The word of the Lord. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, "Lord, Do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as you... But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, in every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. I'm excited to be here tonight. Tonight, we're going to take a pause from the book of 1 John. You might be saying, great, because last week we were left on a cliffhanger. Uh, kind of like right now with season finales of shows, my favorite show is, is Lost. And um, oh my goodness, if you've been watching that lately, the cliffhanger, I, I just like, I can't wait six, seven, eight months to see this, but um, I have to. And last week in 1 John, we left the cliffhanger with Mark in verse 7 said, he was quoting John where he said, if you practice righteousness, you are righteous as he is righteous. And if you've read ahead, you see that the next line is, if you practice unrighteousness, you're a child of the devil. So um, we'll wait for that for next week. And Mark's back. I really want to tackle that um, and call you all children of the devil. So um, whatever. A little easier to not do that. But tonight we're going to be in the book of Luke. And you may be saying, if you've been at, at Matthias's lot for a long time, What? We were there for like two and a half years. What are we doing back in the book of Luke? Well, tonight is a special night. Um, We have several of our members, uh, our launch team members from our launch team of August Gate, the first church plant Matthias is planting in August. They're here tonight, and I'm going to teach through the the book of Luke, chapter 9, 51 through 10-2. And at the end of that, I'm going to show how this ties into the vision of what God is doing in a church planting movement of the gospel in St. Louis, St. Charles, and the surrounding region. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them, open them up. If you have the Pew Bibles, turn to page 741. That's amazing that we have, like, pages for that. Wow. Think about back in the day while you're turning. Back in the day when you were a scribe and you didn't have the, the letters and the numbers and you're like, you had these big old parchments. Turn to the calfskin of Luke and... Um, it would have been a little harder. This is pretty easy, so thank God for modern technology and the printing press. Gutenberg. Luke 9. Um, I am very excited to be here tonight, and um, I hope you guys are. I hope this is not just another Wednesday to come to a building. It's a beautiful day outside, and there's a lot of cool things in town. The Cubs and the Cardinals are playing tonight. Yeah, yeah. That was louder than half the worship set, so uh, we need to pick it up a little bit for Jesus, you know what I'm saying? So we're going to read scripture tonight, and we're going to talk about it. Let's get excited about the gospel, all right? Yeah, all right. All right. I like that. Heard of go Cardinals over there. Go Go Jesus. Either way. 
kind of hoping the Cubs win so Jesus will come back, because that's the last thing that has to happen. <laughs> World Series, they win, it's over. Let's get on task. Luke 9, starting in verses, uh, verse 51, we're going to read tonight in four sections. And in those four sections, we're going to see a few things. So the first section, verses 51 through 53. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. This first section, if we could sum up the theme of this first section, this first three verses, I would say that theme is Jesus' mission. Here in these three verses, we see the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see here the gospel is the focus. Jesus isn't just looking towards Jerusalem because of his death, but more than that. A few months ago, Mark taught, Mark and Jason both taught through the end of the book of Luke and the the week leading up to the crucifixion, and Mark said this thing over and over again, that Jesus walked into the mouth of the storm. And here, even in chapter 9, we see Jesus walking into the mouth of the storm. He has set his face towards Jerusalem. That is, it was an idiom in the Jewish time in, in first century Palestine to say he had set his eyes there. That's where he was going. His mind was focused on Jerusalem. He wasn't just looking towards Jerusalem because he was going to die very soon. He was also looking towards his resurrection, his ascension, and his second coming. Because they were all going to take place in Jerusalem. The second thing we learn about this section is that the whole book of Luke pictures Jesus and his interaction with Jerusalem. As you went through Luke, did you realize that? The whole book is centered around this theme of Jesus and the city of Jerusalem. Here's what I mean. He was dedicated as a baby by Simeon, and we see his interaction in the temple with the teachers of the law in chapter 2. And we see this in chapter 9, how he sets his face towards Jerusalem. We see uh, in between, we see uh, the bulk happening of the book either happening in Jerusalem or pointing towards Jerusalem. We see his crucifixion, his resurrection, and ascension at the end. And my question, as I read all this, and the question I want you to have is why? Why Jerusalem? Why is Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem of all places? I want to to take a look through the Bible of what's going on in Jerusalem. First and foremost, it's the place where Abraham offered up Isaac to God. You may not realize that, but Mount Moriah is thought to be the Temple Mount. And so where Abraham brought Isaac and was going to sacrifice him to obey the Lord, that is the place where Jesus taught and where Jesus himself came, the real sacrificial lamb. It's where David brought the Ark of the Covenant and established his rule. And therefore it's synonymous with Israelite unity. So it's this place of Israel that when they think about Jerusalem, they think about the unity of the once powerful kingdom that ruled. And they think about King David. It's the place where the physical temple was built. This was the center of worship. As Christians, we don't have a center like that. But for for Jews, this was the center of all worship, the temple. This is where the son of David would be killed, purchasing his people. This is where he would ascend to heaven and one day return. This is where he was buried and he would resurrect. This is where the church was birthed, in Jerusalem. This is where the church was sent out from. And as Jesus sets his face for Jerusalem, he is setting his face towards the eternal purpose of God, the gospel. Because as we know in Luke 24, he says that all scripture is about him. All scripture is the gospel. 
And so the gospel, the story of God is centered around this place called Jerusalem. So as Jesus sets his face there, he is setting his face towards the wrapping up of the gospel, of stirring this along. And before Jesus came, there were 450 years of silence. God did not speak. And then Jesus steps on the scene, and this begins to happen. And he sets his face towards Jerusalem to say, here it goes. Things are about to get crazy. And we see that they do. And the third thing we learn from this section is the gospel is the focus, even when it faces hostility. See, Samaritans didn't recognize Jerusalem as the central place for worship. Jesus comes through, he sends servants ahead to find a place for him to sleep, to make arrangements for him, and they won't accept him. No, Jesus can't stay here. Why? Because Samaritans believed you should worship God on Mount Gerizim. They set up their own place of worship because they don't recognize the second half of the Old Testament. And so these people have a cultural war going on, a religious war going on. And so as Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem, the Samaritans say no. So Jewish pilgrims would often, as they came from Galilee through Samaria, which was between Galilee and Jerusalem and Judea, they would pass through this area and they would often find hostility. And Jesus finds the same hostility and he's given no place to sleep. But my question here is, does Jesus change his plan? Faces hostility, does he decide to contextualize? Well, you know, the Samaritans don't like Jerusalem, so I'll just kind of, I'll just change things and water it down so it's all about, you know, Mount Jerusalem. I'll, I'll change some verses around, and we want to be inclusive, right, of the Samaritans. No, he doesn't do that. He, even though there is this hostility, he doesn't revert his focus. He keeps his eyes on the gospel. He keeps his eyes on the mission that God has called him to, and it's centered in Jerusalem. Let's read on the next couple of verses, verses 54 through 56. And when his disciples James and John saw it, James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Are we pausing for the same reason here? Did you just read that? James and John, two of the closest guys to Jesus, they see Jesus turned away. It's not like, do you want us to throw eggs at their houses? Do you want us to TP their palm trees? Do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? No reaction. Okay. Tough crowd tonight. I'm freaking out by that. I'm wondering what that rebuke looks like. It's, it doesn't say what Jesus does. He just rebukes them. And we probably think of... You know, those old-fashioned Jesus movies. James and John, you shouldn't do that. I wonder what Jesus said here. I really want to ask Jesus that one day. But see, the refusal of Jesus was a refusal of Jerusalem. And a refusal for housing Jesus was a refusal of the gospel. No, Jesus. Your message, your mission is not welcome here in Samaria. And James and John want to punish the Samaritans because they would not accept Jesus. You know, this is reminiscent of another scripture in the Bible. And I believe it's on purpose. It's reminiscent of 2 Kings 1. When you have time, write this down later. Go home, read 2 Kings 1. This is kind of comical. Here's what happens. Elijah, you guys know Elijah the prophet, called fire from heaven on Mount Carmel. You know, all the bulls in the water and all that stuff. A lot of fun. Well, he is a, he's a pyromaniac. He has a lot of fun with fire in the Bible. So here in 2 Kings 1, um, Ahab has died. He's the evil king of Jerusalem. Boo, Ahab. He dies. And Ahaziah takes, takes over. Ahaziah, though, is, I don't know if he's drunk or what he's doing, but he's up in his, uh, his kingly palace, and in, which is in Samaria. The capital then of Israel was, was in Samaria. And so he's in, in Samaria, 
and he falls over his lattice, the Bible says in 2 Kings 1. And he falls, and he hurts himself very badly. And so what does he do? Uh, instead of trusting the Lord, he decides to send his messengers to the neighboring kingdom to ask their god and their king if he will get better. Um, the god of that kingdom is probably Baal, or Baal, if you say it in Hebrew. Um, and so what we see here is a play on words in 2 Kings 1. Uh, the prophet Elijah doesn't like this. And so he sends a messenger into the king and says, Is there no God in Israel that you would send your messengers to get a message from Beelzebub? Which means the Lord of the Flies, or the devil. And it's a play on words for Baal and Beelzebub in the Hebrew. They look alike. And so he throws out this pretty much, Oh, King Ahaziah, you just got punked. And Elijah is ticked off. And so here's what the king does. He wants to make good with it, Elijah, because he knows what happened. You know, with the fire and the heaven and the people dying and all that. He doesn't really want that to happen. So he sends 50 messengers, 50 soldiers, and their captain to see Elijah. And they say, oh, man of God, come down and speak with us. And uh, Elijah, this dude's a stud. This is what he does. He says, if I be a man of God, fire will come down from heaven and consume you. Boom! Fire from heaven consumes them. They're dead. Every single one of them. Burn up. Like, I didn't read this in Sunday school. This is an amazing story. Okay, so the king is like, what do I do? So a second time, he sends 50 soldiers with their captain to speak to Elijah. Oh, man of God, if you would listen to us, please come down. He says, if I be a man of God, fire will come down and consume you. And yes, a second time, fire comes down and consumes all 51 men. At this point, if you were Ahaziah, you better be running for the hills or doing something. Because Elijah's a stud. Um... And so the third time he sends 50 men with their captain and they come with a little more humility and they say, please heed our message. We need to hear from you. Prophet, man of God, please come down. And he says, okay, I'll come down. I'll play nice. And so what we see here is that James and John are looking at Jesus like Elijah. We, we see the end of the Bible, the end of the Old Testament end with Elijah and his second coming. They're expecting a prophet like Elijah to come. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, they ask, actually ask him at one point. They say, he says, who do the people say, say I am? They say, some say Elijah. People think Jesus may be Elijah. And they think, hey, you're a man of God. They won't accept you in Samaria, because we're in Samaria again. Call fire from heaven and let's kill them all. Like Old Testament style. And Jesus teaches this in this section. Now is not the time for judgment. So we have to understand here. Now, as Jesus is on the scene, now is not the time for judgment. See, judgment is going to come one day. We can't be these Christians who say, you know what, judgment's, judgment's really hard. I don't really like that God. I like the nice, soft Jesus who uses suave conditioner and loves everybody. Okay, they're, the, they're one and the same. God is equally just and equally loving. He's a God of wrath and he's a God of mercy. And those things do not fight against one another. They are perfectly in unity in the person of Jesus Christ, but one day judgment will come. And the gospel is the grace of God in light of this judgment. See, I often tell people when we talk about evangelism that the gospel is called good news, and there really can't be good news unless there's bad news first. Because there is judgment, because we are sinners, depraved, born into sin, yet we keep on sinning, we have turned and rebelled from God. The only way that we can be saved if God in his mercy reaches out and grabs us and gives us grace. And so the gospel is in the midst of that judgment, that impending judgment's coming. God saves us by his mighty right arm. Nothing that we can do, only by his choice and his grace. 
And so Jesus teaches now is not the time for judgment. Actually, it doesn't say here in Scripture, and it's probably not inerrant Scripture, but some, some copies of Scripture, not the oldest, not the best known, they actually say that when he, Jesus rebukes them, he actually says, you don't know what spirit you were of, because the Son of Man has come not to take men's lives, but to give them life. He said that's probably a later edition by some scribes somewhere who wanted to explain the gospel a little bit, a little bit of commentary. But that is the, the spirit of what's going on here. And the third thing we see here is Jesus rebukes the idea that the gospel is a gospel of coercion. The gospel is not a gospel of coercion. Jesus is not going to force people to follow him. They won't accept him in Samaria. He goes on to another village. He has his fate set to Jerusalem. And all this other is peripheral. You see, maybe James and John wanted power. Maybe James and John are like, hey, we're hanging out with Jesus. We're men of God. Maybe we should call down fire like Elijah. If Jesus isn't Elijah, maybe one of us is. You see, guys, the gospel is not about the power. It's the gospel that power points to. Here's a question. Here's a series of questions. Does God heal? Does God heal? This is yes. God heals. Does God work miracles? Yes, absolutely. Does God do amazing things that boggle our minds? Again, the answer is resounding. Yes. But all those things point to the focus that Jesus took on flesh to live a sinless life, die a substitutionary death, raise that we might have new life, and reign that we might continue the work he began on reconciling the world to himself. The gospel is not about the power. The power is about the gospel. And so when we, we look to other things like James and John are here, looking to other things besides the gospel, we're getting our eyes off track. The point is the gospel, and the gospel teaches us here by Jesus that it will not coerce. Next section Verses 57 through 62. Let's read this together. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me... First, say farewell to those of my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Whoa. This third section here, the, the overview of it all is the cost. Even if you look in your Bibles, there may be a heading that says the cost of discipleship, or the cost of following Jesus. And that truly is the essence of what is being taught here. But the first thing this section really teaches is that the gospel demands. It does demand. While while eternal life is free, there's nothing we can do to earn it, it also demands everything we have. And if you didn't hear that, you were offered this easy believism, this, someone knocked on your door and said, hey, do you want to go to a literal hell and burn in a lake of fire forever and worms eat out your eye sockets? No. Pray this prayer. Okay. Dear Jesus, dear Jesus, forgive my sins, forgive my sins. Amen, amen. Your name is now written in the Lamb's book of life. Hooray! That is not the gospel. It's missing. It's missing. The truth of it is, from Jesus' own mouth, is the gospel demands. It demands something. There's a cost. Not only will Jesus not coerce, but he wants to show all that are too eager to be disciples that he has nothing to offer them but risk. So I can just see this first man running up. 
they're leaving Samaria because they won't accept Jesus. And this guy kind of runs up like that, you know, that little brother, that bratty little brother who's always going to follow you around the school. Hey, what's going on? What's going on? Hey, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. Because he just saw what happened. Oh, the Samaritans won't accept you, but Jesus, I will. I'll follow you anywhere. This may even be Peter. I mean, because Peter did this later. I'll go to jail or even death. Probably not Peter, though. First, we see to this first guy, we see following him offers no earthly prize, but will bring rejection. See, Jesus is pointing back here. He's not saying, you're going to follow me, you've got to be homeless. Some people have followed this literally and sold everything they have and been homeless. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The Son of Man is Jesus. I'm not. Okay? He doesn't have a place to lay his head. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about in Samaria, he had no place to sleep. And so he said, if you really, truly want to follow me, you're going to be rejected. You're going to go into towns, try to find a place to sleep, which you would normally do back in that day. People would be like, sure, come on in. It's like grandma's house. But here they're like, no, Jesus, you want to go to Jerusalem. And so he's telling his, these all too eager possible disciples, you're going to be rejected. The gospel demands that you were able to face rejection. Are we living that out in our lives? Are we seeing rejection? Are we continuing to follow, continuing to follow Jesus in the midst of it? The second person he, he uh, interacts with, we see following Jesus requires a dramatic change in priorities. See, back in that day, burying your, your Jewish parents, it was a religious duty that had precedence over everything. You didn't go to work if you had to do that. It was a cultural thing. It was a very religious thing for them. And so Jesus taught kingdom over family. And later we see in the gospel, Luke, we see that. You have to hate your father and mother in comparison to me. What? Jesus was also a rabbi. He, he didn't have the formal training, but he was a rabbi. He was a teacher. And rabbis in this day did a thing called rabbinical hyperbole. It's a big phrase for saying they used a lot of exaggerations to make a point. For instance, Jesus once told a man, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. If your right eye offends you, gouge it out. It's better to enter into eternal life, not incomplete, than to be, have your whole self thrown into hell. Did Jesus really want us to cut off our hands and gouge out our eyes? No, he's speaking in hyperbole. He's saying, you're going to blame your sin on your hand? You're going to blame it on your eye? If that's really the problem, get rid of it. But he knows it's not the problem. The problem is the heart. The depraved, deceitful heart that we have. And here he's teaching him with hyperbole. He's saying, the kingdom of God is greater than anything you understand. And right now, in Jewish culture, the greatest thing they understood was familial responsibility. He's saying, you don't understand the kingdom. You wouldn't ask me that question if you knew the urgency of the kingdom. And so Jesus wasn't saying, don't take care of your family responsibilities. He's saying, do so out of obedience, not, out, not instead of obedience. This guy was trying to make excuses. Well, I'll follow you, but let me do these other things first. Do we have those excuses? Well, Jesus, I'll do this. But first, I need to get these things straight. Third person. We find that following Jesus means to be like Jesus and set our faces on the gospel and not the things we left to follow Jesus. Earlier, James and John wanted to compare Jesus to Elijah. And so Jesus here, in kind of an ironic sense, he continues with that line of thinking, with the, the Elijah um, line of thinking. And this, this section here is reminiscent of 1 Kings 19. Once again, go home, read 1 Kings and 2 Kings. It's great. A lot of, a lot of uh, comedic elements to it, but... 1 Kings 19 
is what's going on here is this. Elijah, great prophet, is about to pass on his authority and power to a young man named Elisha. Have you heard of this man? Elisha. I always got this really confused when I was a little kid. I thought maybe it was because I had a speech impediment, but it was just like, I didn't understand. Elijah, Elisha. But here's the story. Elisha is plowing a field. Anybody catching similarities yet between these stories? He's plowing a field, and Elijah comes by and says, come and follow me. And he brushes him with his cloak, which is where it was like a symbol of passing on his power. Come and follow me. And Elisha says, okay, but first let me go kiss my father and mother, and then I'll follow you. Just like this man, let me go say goodbye. Elisha, or Elijah here says, okay, go do it and come back and follow me. And what we learn from here is that Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is. See, Jesus is greater than Elijah. And for us, it's kind of like, no duh, we read the book of Hebrews, he's greater than everybody. For them, at this point, this is monumental. Jesus is greater than Elijah? Elijah was a prophet who never died. Did you realize that? The dude never died. God just whoop, came and got him, like teleported. I, I, don't, I don't know if the new Star Trek movie has stuff like that in it, it probably does, but it's kind of like that, just gone. It never dies. He's, he's spoken about in scriptures, coming back one day, the spirit of Elijah. He, he spoke with authority. He called down fire from heaven numerous times. This is no joke. This is not some wimpy prophet like Jonah who whined because God wanted to save a city that he didn't like. This is a tough dude. And scripture teaches here that Jesus is greater than Elijah. But what we see is that Elijah afforded, afforded someone the luxury of saying goodbye, but not Jesus. Jesus is more hardcore than Elijah. You want to follow Jesus? No. You don't look back. Because here's the thing. So Jesus is teaching us. When we come to follow him, we have to say goodbye to some things. We have to say goodbye to the old life. And too many of us aren't saying goodbye to the old life. We're wanting the old life add Jesus to it. Same old sinner, throw on a Christian t-shirt, now I'm good. Use our theology of, oh, I'm just depraved, it's just my nature to keep on sinning. It's easy to see. Most of us in the room probably have Facebook. Go look at each other's Facebook one day. You'll find out a lot about a person they do in their spare time. We are living the same old life. And Jesus says, you've got to say goodbye to that. You have no time to be going back and, and kissing that goodbye. You've already done that. Come, follow me. And the third thing we find from this section is that the gospel demands we give up our idols. For this man, his family was an idol. And an idol is this. It's anything we look to to give us something only God can give us. Once again, an idol is anything we look to to give us something only God can give us. What's your idol tonight you need to get rid of? Is it a relationship? Are you looking for a connection with a person? A relationship only God can truly give you? If you're looking for that in another person, that person's an idol. You have made that person sitting next to you maybe holding hands with a God. And they're a God that is rivaling Yahweh. And Jesus says, say goodbye to your idols. Maybe it's a job. Maybe you can't trust God with finances and you say, I just worry too much. And so your job, your boss is your provider, literally. That is what gives you your financial support. If you have done that, that is something only God can give us. Scripture teaches us. If you have done that, your job, your boss is an idol. It's a false God that you are worshiping. And it's time to say goodbye. We learn that 
The gospel demands. It demands we give up our idols. And here's the thing we learn when we give up our idols. I heard this by, from Tim Keller a few weeks ago, the Gospel Coalition. The gods, the gods will always hurt us. We don't realize the things in our lives right now we are giving idolship to, we are giving lordship in our lives to. We think we can't get rid of those things because if we do, our lives will fall apart. What you have to know is right now, you are giving to that acknowledgement to something that only God can give you. And once you finally let go of that, you will find the the freedom that you finally have and the bondage that you were once in because the gods are never, never, never kind to us. The gods want to kill us. And so it's time tonight, it's what Jesus says, it's time to get rid of your idols. And let's move on to the final section. Luke 10, 1 and 2. In this section, if I could sum it up in, in, in two words, it's this, the mission. This is the mission right here. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's the mission. It's the mission. The first thing we learn here is that the gospel sends... As Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem, he sends out 72. He sends out disciples. It is sending. He didn't hoard them to himself and say, huddle around me. We're going to go take up and set up a kingdom in Jerusalem. He sends them out. And when Jesus sends out the 12 at other places in the Gospels, it's often thought that the number represents the 12 tribes of Israel. That Jesus has come to redeem the 12 tribes of God's people. And here, in Luke 10, he sends out 72. And that number is also equally important. Because 72 was the number of nations that were thought to exist at that time. If you actually look to Genesis 10 in the table of nations, count them up. 72. Jesus is, is metaphorically saying the gospel is going to the nations. It's not just about Jerusalem. It starts there, but it's going to go out. And so what we see here is that the gospel sends. The second thing we see is that the gospel sends us everywhere Jesus is going. It says here literally in the scripture, he sent them on ahead of him into every town and place where he himself was about to go. In the same way, Jesus sends the church today to every place that he himself is going to go. To every place that Jesus is going to, with his own hand, grab people and save them from. Revelation 7. The Apostle John sees a vision of heaven. And what does he see? He says, he says he sees people from every nation. Every nation is there. So Jesus has saved and he has gone to every nation. So Jesus is sending out the church to every nation. And we have done a great job as a church in the last 50 years of being on mission, going to, on foreign missions. Matthias's lot loves missions. And we're in the country of Laos, seeing God do amazing things. We see God sends us everywhere that Jesus is going. So by nature, the church is a called people. By nature, the church is a sent people. Not only are we sent, but we should be praying that God would continue to send. And it's not just international. We're finding that out. Matthias is a product of that. It's not just about foreign countries where the gospel is not going. It's also about here in America, in our own cities, where we have unchurched by the droves, people who have never really truly heard the gospel. 
And the third thing we're going to learn here tonight in Luke 10 too, is that this is the vision and the impetus of why I'm here. Why I, Noah, am here. See, almost six years ago, God began to create this vision in my heart. Six years ago. It happened when a few college students saw the desperate need for the gospel in our generation. We saw our classmates from high school, our classmates from college walking away from the church. And we saw our lives infected by and not affecting the world. There was a desperate need. And six years ago, this began to stir in my heart. And then three years ago, as a youth pastor in southern Illinois, God began to stir again. I saw the gospel was bigger finally than a single local congregation in a rural community. And I saw the gospel was about this broad, dynamic change that God wanted to do in the world. And I I believe that the gospel was about the transformation of hearts and culture. And I finally dared to believe that God wanted to change more than just my life. He wanted to change the world. So sitting in a cornfield in southern Illinois, I dared to believe that. And then two years ago, I sat down with two college friends at a St. Louis bread company in Brentwood. And God began to stir again. And the call on our hearts was to see the gospel proclaimed in St. Louis. And I'm from a rural community, a farming community, cornfields, soybean fields everywhere. And each year in August, the farmers began to turn their minds towards one thing. Every year in August, they begin to think about the harvest. It's coming. They've got to get ready. It may not happen until September, but they've got to get ready. Because for, for a few months, everything they have staked their lives on for the whole past eight months is coming to fruition. And if they don't do this right, if they don't get this part, it's all for naught. And so in August every year, farmers begin to look towards the harvest. And St. Louis, we all love St. Louis, right? St. Louis is fondly known as the gateway city. So as we began to talk and to pray about what God was doing in our hearts, we realized that God was calling us to harvest the city. And through that, this name for a church came together. And it's the name August Gate. And it literally means harvest the city. And so, God has been painting a picture. God's been writing a story for the last few years. And I want to talk about story here for a second. All of life really is a story. It's this meta-narrative. It's this bigger story we talk about. It's the, the God story. The story that we call existence. And it has one hero. And that hero's name is Jesus. And the main characters really aren't us. They're God. And Jesus and the Holy Spirit. He's the main character, not us. But there's this meta narrative, and it's a large, complex story. But also within this meta narrative, there's these smaller stories. And you guys remember going through the book of Genesis and Matthias' lot, right? Like that felt like six years ago. It was only a few, it was about four years ago when he started, but remember going through Genesis? And each chapter you saw another story that fit into the bigger story. You saw the story of Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob. And those kind of fit together to be this whole book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis fit into the Old Testament. The Old Testament fit into the, with the New Testament to make this scripture. And it, this whole story of what God is doing. But also, M- Matthias's lot has a story. Beginning over four years ago, a vision was birthed in the heart of a few people. To see St. Charles reached. To 
to see Linenwood campus reached, to see the poor and the hungry and the elderly and the widows taken care of. They wanted literally to see people, the church, loving him and loving his. And from the beginning of the Matthias's Lot story, there's been this desire to be a church that plants other churches. And this is where the story of August Gate, for you all, begins. But it, it began much earlier. I want to paint this picture for you of a long process, if I will, if I can. I have a few people here that are from our launch team. If they could, go ahead and come on up. And I just want you to stand across the front here. August Gate launch team, come on up. Not all at once. There's a few here. We, right now we have about 20 people that are meeting on Sunday nights together. But I want them to come up here and I want to paint this picture for you. It's like a, a word picture. It's beautiful. So my first day at McKendry College, I meet this guy. He's got blonde, spiky hair. And he's really, really loud. I'm, uh, I, I'm went there on a football scholarship and I happen to run the 40-yard dash for two-a-days to see how slow I am. Not how fast, how slow. And I run it a couple times because my time wasn't good enough. At the end of it, this guy timing me goes crazy. Hugging me, giving me high fives, yelling at me like I thought I was, I was scared for a second. And I find out this guy's name is Mark Sigma. Six years ago, actually, what is that now? Eight years ago. Eight years ago, I meet Mark Sigma. And then later that year, um, I meet a guy on the football team I eventually hang out with, named Josh Jones. Guy right here. We end up being roommates for three years, and God knits us together. We have a lot of time of, of uh, overflowing toilets and um, arguing with each other about scripture and, and finding it hard to love another Christian brother, but really loving each other and being unified. And then in the middle of that, we meet a guy named Todd through FCA. And we begin to hang out. At first, I don't like Todd at all because me and Todd are a lot alike. We're the same like football position in high school. Both of our team's mascots were the Eagles and were purple and gold. And all the girls liked him. And so I was ticked. But I began to love Todd. And then in the story, through a long, amazing story that resembles the notebook without all the premarital shenanigans, me and Heather are reunited, are reunited and we get married in 2005. It is amazing. No, none of the shenanigans, though. It was God-honoring. And, and we began our life together, and that happens, and then through, through that, that, that pattern, and through that time, as a youth pastor, God begins to develop me, and develop this vision, and then somehow I end up in St. Louis, and I end up in Florida, and I come up from Florida last, a year ago, a year ago, April, and I meet Kelly Beth. She's singing with Josh at First Baptist O'Fallon, and I meet her, and we all, all of a sudden we just talk about Mark Driscoll, which I thought was amazing. I don't even remember that, and we talk about that, and I, in my mindset, she's going to help us plant this church. She doesn't know that, but she is now, so God wins. And then her amazing husband, Scott, I didn't meet until a few months ago. And I've been praying for them for several months now to come and join us. And when I get here to Matthias' lot, the first week I'm here, I meet a couple people. I meet Elizabeth Kimmel. And I'm gone for the weekend with with Mark to this loser's thing called BWT. And while I'm gone, Heather and Todd and Kimmel go to a boys to men concert and become best friends. I don't know if they were singing Water Runs Dry with their hands in the air. I don't know what it was, but they became best friends. She helped us paint you know, the, the ugly mob and forest green living room we had. And she began to like hang out with us and we had this connection. And I met this guy named Bobby Colombo at, at, at the Matthias' Lot values class. I thought, this dude's really cool. We care about the same stuff, like theology. And so we hit it off and became part of our, our uh, Lot family. And then I, I meet Bree Bird, 
who is doing an internship with Matthias, and she's ended the internship, but she's still there working like full-time doing everything. And we began to talk. And just a few weeks ago, after months of deliberating and praying to herself, she calls me and says, it's, it's go time. God's calling me to go to August Gate. And there's several other people that are in this group. I can just tell you how God is fitting people together and he's creating this story and it's a beautiful picture. I mean, who could imagine all these connections that are here, how God would bring these paths together because at one time, one place and time in life, as Todd explains very, very beautifully, we're all like those dotted lines. Like at an airport, you see all these people coming together and then they leave and go on different planes. Like all these dotted lines are going throughout life and at one point in time, we all come together and now our dotted line is going in the same direction. And God is painting this picture, and it's beautiful. And my question for you tonight is, what character in the story are you going to play? It is the desire and the heart and the vision of Matthias's lot to plant churches. And in a few months, we will be launching a brand new church in Soulard, one of the most unchurched areas of St. Louis. It's the home of Mardi Gras. It's the home of debauchery and sin, if we want to be honest about it. People worship the god of Budweiser there because the plant's there. They do. They made an idol out of it. And the party lifestyle and the community they have surrounded around those things, like Mardi Gras and partying, it's there. And there's a few churches here that are doing their own thing. But there's not a heavy gospel presentation there. And our generation is unreached. And God has called us to Soulard. And so these next several months, we're building up towards that. We're actually moving down this next month in June and in July, several of us will, ne- will be living in the area. We've given our lives to it. Because we realize, as we, we've read the story tonight of Luke, the gospel demands, the gospel calls, the gospel sends. And my challenge to you tonight is what character in the story will you play? There's several things to pray about. Maybe God is calling you and has been calling you for months to talk to us about this vision so that you could maybe pray about going. Because here's the thing. When we first came, we thought maybe we were going to plant around St. Charles. We decided God has just called us to St. Louis. It's, un- it's inevitable. Several people that, don't, that live in this area, all of a sudden you went, I don't have to pray anymore because they're not going to be here. Because I can't move. God wouldn't call me to move. God wouldn't call me to give up anything, would he? Every single person standing up here is having to give up things in life. God has told us that our commitments to him, to kingdom, are greater than family. How about this? When God called me to leave El Dorado, Illinois, I knew I had a few short months before my mother died. And while I was gone, living in Florida on this process of church plant, she died. And I could have said, no, God, wait, wait. Just let me wait. Let me bury my mother. Let me say goodbye. But the gospel calls. The gospel demands. So, if God is tugging at your heart and he's saying, be involved, Maybe you're supposed to go. Maybe you're supposed to give. Maybe you're supposed to pray. Maybe you're supposed to come down during our launch services and preview services and help with child care. Maybe you're supposed to do something like that. Seriously, begin tonight to ask the Lord, what part do I play? Because this is not our story. This is our story. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? That is an amazing thing. So we're going to pray tonight. Jeremy's going to come back up and we're going to worship. We're going to worship because of the gospel and what it's doing. But the amazing thing is, in three months from now, there's going to be a church in Soulard that was not there three months ago. There's going to be a people that are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, that are loving the hurting and the broken, that are telling people about their only hope in life, that we're not doing that previously. 
And that's something to get excited about. Do you agree? Do you? And so we're going to worship tonight because of the gospel. And we're going to worship tonight because God has chosen us to be a part of his story, whatever that looks like. So if you would stand with me, we're going to pray and then we're going to continue in worship. Father God, I thank you for who you are and I thank you for your word. God, I praise you for what you're doing. I thank you for the handful of people who have been standing with me here tonight and what you're calling us to. And God, I thank you for Matthias's lot, this church that has taken a chance, that has taken a chance on the gospel to believe you, God, that you want to multiply what you're doing here at Matthias's lot. And God, I pray tonight that every last one of us will be burdened deep to our core of what the part we're supposed to play in this movement of the gospel. God, I pray you would challenge us to be on mission, whether it's in St. Charles, St. Louis, or Wentzville. That God, you would let us know that we are sent, we are called, and God, it's all a work of grace in our lives. Jesus, we love you. And as we worship you, God, may you come and tenderize our hearts. We could not deny your calling. In Jesus' name, amen.